Welcome to the Attention Please podcast now on video. If you like this podcast, kindly like, share, subscribe. You know what to do. And it says so also up there, you know what to do. So uh, today is my birthday. It's my birthday. And uh, I had put a question on Twitter that we would, you know, if you have any questions that you want to ask me. And this is something which I usually do on my birthday. Sometimes I do it twice a year, which is an Ask Me Anything, an AMA. And so several of you, quite a few of you uh, sent me questions. So I'll try to answer as many of them as I can within a reasonable period of time. Some of the questions are like are worth uh, a podcast of their own. So I might not be able to go to the level of detail that I would usually like, but let's begin. So the first question that I would like to handle, and again, usually I have had Vikram Mohan asking me these questions, so it's a little bit easier for me to do it, but now I'll have to <coughs> sorry, move to the questions to look at what, the question that I'm currently looking at. So it's open on the screen to the left. So if you see my eyes moving, um, that's the reason. So the first question that I'm going to answer is, uh, if you can, asks me, uh, feel that you have slowly veered towards right, you were firm center. Is it a reaction to attacks on you for not being left? So first of all, if you feel that I've moved to the right, it may be that you have also shifted. So just like that classical problem of two people moving on two trains and observing each other's velocities, um, where I am on the political spectrum is also a function of where you are when you're observing me. So that's my retort to that. I don't think that I have moved towards the right at all. For instance, today I made a video which was basically spoofing one of my one of the Bengali food bloggers that I follow. And I was showing like as part of the and I strongly encourage you to check out the video. It's in Bengali, unfortunately, where uh, for my non-Bengali uh, listeners. So there, even during a food blogging video, I show the paneer and I say that's the vision of a of a BJP ruled Bengal. So I'm always very critical of many aspects of the Indian right wing, especially when it comes to, let's say, militant vegetarianism, or I'd say intolerant vegetarianism, a lot of other things. So, no, I don't think that I've ever moved to the right. I'm dead centered. Again, centrism is that on some issues, you will align with the right. And on some issues, you will align with the left. It's not an arithmetic mean of two positions. As some, some people, I remember in News Laundry, they tried to do it. They actually said that about me, uh, where they said, you know, basically mischaracterizing me, very typical of them, unfortunately, um, as they're basically an arithmetic mean of two extreme positions. Um, so that's not true. It's It, it aligns dif- ba- based on issues. So there are some issues on which I align left, some issues on which I align right. It's simple as that. The next question is kind of funny, which is uh, Magur asks, when and where you had your first beer? So the first time I had beer was when I came to the U.S. to study. So I came here to do my PhD, came in 99. So when I was in Jadavpur University before that as an undergrad, I actually never had alcohol. There was one time when I was at a fest, somebody gave me like a diluted version of rum, which was obviously I couldn't even feel it. It was so diluted. So I, it basically I never had a drink. 
before I came to the US. So I think I had a beer in the first semester where we went pub hopping. Pub hopping meant I, I was in Stony Brook, which was in Long Island. So we went to the reason why we went pub hopping, actually, that's interesting, was that they used to give free food on Mondays uh, for Monday night football. It's not football wasn't something which I ever saw, never followed it since. But I went there with a few of my friends. I didn't have a car, so they drove me. We, we all went in a group basically to have the free food. And there you just can't have free food, you have to have beer. So we had beer and I remember ordering Guinness. And that was my first beer. I absolutely remember that. And I really liked Guinness, actually. It was possibly not the beer that people would recommend that you have the first time that you're having beer, but I had Guinness as my first beer. Uh, the next question that I'm looking at is again this: How did it's from Zoo XU and it's Eknath Namdev? He says, "How did Bengal go from jewel of India, Ramkrishna Vivekananda Tagore industrial titan, to what it is today? Is there hope for a revival of that Hindu entrepreneur spirit of the past?" So, unfortunately, in your question, you put Hindu for Tagore. Tagore wasn't Hindu. I mean, he would possibly not like to be called a Hindu. He was a Brahmo, which was, again, they, they distinguished themselves from what was traditional Hinduism in those days, specifically. I mean, they, 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 they went to great lengths to make that distinction. So it was basically a, a Catholic flavor of Hinduism. That was what really Brahmoism was. And I'm obviously being, I'm oversimplifying, but just, 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 just trying to point out that the question itself, there is a, there's a flaw in the question. Um, so the, the reason why Bengal, there are many reasons for that. And I think the major reason is that historically, and I, I, know, that the, I know that the answer that this person possibly asks is communism is because all of them are communist. And that's only a part of the problem. The real reason why Bengal went down was basically... Culture is a function of the amount of affluence that a state has, right? Right now, I think, for instance, the best movies come from the South. They come from <clears throat> they, they, they come from Tamil Nadu, they come from Karnataka, they come from the more affluent states, they come from Andhra Pradesh, they come from the more affluent states of the country. Um, and there's a reason for that. Culture can only thrive when there is affluence. Culture cannot thrive when you are living the proverbial hand-to-mouth existence. So uh, the, the thing was that Bengal used to be a rich state. It was a very rich state at what point of time. And the reason why, and again, again, the answer that people want to hear is communism, at least a certain section of the population, certain section don't want to hear that. But the reason is partition. That was the real reason. Because unlike Punjab, <clears throat> where when partition happened, there was, <clears throat> there was land, there was a lot of land that yeah, people moved away from this part, but when people came in, there was vacant land on which they could settle. In Bengal, actually, there was very little movement on this direction. So it was basically Hindus had to leave East Pakistan, but pretty not a lot of people on this side left for the other side. Unlike in Punjab, where there was kind of an equal exchange of population. So what happened was that there was a huge influx of refugees with no place to settle them. There was not this vacant land lying about. Like the growth of Delhi is basically that. Refugees from Pakistan came in and built sections of Delhi. There was nothing in around Calcutta to accommodate the influx of refugees. And that's where the problem started. 
and communism and everything grew from there because there were a lot of disaffected people who had been um, basically kicked out from their homeland because of their religion. They were not they were not welcome by the local population. That is also true if you if you look at the if you look at the you know for instance Rithik Ghatak's movies there is an enormous amount of angst uh, that he that he expresses in his movies not just uh, you know reminiscing about the land that they left but also the way they were not accepted by the people in the western part of Bengal and West Bengal. So that's really where the decline started, that affluence started growing down. There was just less amount of stuff for everyone. There were just too many people at that point of time. And once that happens, everything else starts from that. And what we see in terms of the cultural uh, going down, the degradation of Bengal is essentially a concomitant of the fact that we are no longer one of the richest states of the country. We used to be at one point of time. So um, there's a there's a question on the SSR case. So your views on the SSR case? I've already done a podcast, and again, I honestly haven't followed it, and I just don't know where it is at this point of time. So um, somebody says a movie, a series, a book that impressed you this year. When is the next murder mystery coming from you? I I am not planning to write a murder mystery anytime soon. Unfortunately, the problem with writing murder mysteries is that Agatha Christie has kind of done all the plots. It's very difficult to come up with something original in this space. You can regurgitate one of her plots and hope that people don't realize that you've done so, which is what a lot of which is what a lot of novelists do. I mean, I whatever murder mysteries I read, I find over oh, and I, I can immediately map it to what I've read before in Agatha Christie. I know pretty much 50% in where this is going. Because, you know, the, the hooks and the callbacks are being established. You know exactly where this is going. So I would be very hesitant in writing a murder mystery of what people normally mean by murder mystery. A Shakchuni is kind of has a flavor of at least multiple deaths in the supernatural and everything. But I wouldn't call it a murder mystery. No, I wouldn't call it that. There's obviously twists and turns and everything. But it's not, I wouldn't slot it in the murder mystery genre at all. Maybe Mahabharat murders, you can kind of, but it's still, I mean, if I was reading Mahabharat murders written by somebody else, and I went in thinking of it as a murder mystery in the Agatha Christie sense, I would be disappointed. It's not a murder mystery in that respect. It is, you know, a thriller. It has suspense. It's definitely, there is a, there's a detective and there is, there's some, there's quite a bit of twist, but it's not a murder mystery. For me, murder mystery is the Agatha Christie kind of book. That's to me that murder mystery. So a movie series, a book that impressed me this year. Again, the problem with these kinds of questions when it's suddenly asked is there's obviously a recency bias in, in any question like this. So just really can't remember anything. I would say Better Call Saul. Um, I think Better Call Saul finished this year. It was for me the best thing this year that I've seen. Uh, but Better Call Saul isn't like a this year phenomenon. It's been going on for a number of years. It's just that the season finale was this year. And I felt that this was possibly one of the best, if not the best TV series I've seen. Again, I would put it on a tie with Sopranos. Uh, but I definitely think it is better than better uh, than Breaking Bad. And I know that's a controversial, unpopular opinion. But I think that Better Call Saul. And I think I've discussed this before also. So I don't want to go into details why I feel it's better than Better Call Saul. But I just think it's a more mature and... I, I, 
and this is almost like they're getting a chance of a redo. So the makers of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, as you know, are the same. So I think they understood the mistakes they made, especially in the way they ended Breaking Bad and they rectified it. They actually retconned some of the stuff. They put in scenes from Breaking Bad in the finale of Better Call Saul and actually made the ending of Breaking Bad much better because of that. I think they rectified some of the issues that it had. So I think they also feel that they have improved upon what Breaking Bad was, in my opinion. Um, then there's a question, and I almost, and I get this question many times. It's from Ad, Ad Mo. Do you ever plan to move back to India or spend more time in the country in the future? So, you see, there was a time when, I think around uh, 2018, when my daughter was much younger, that I seriously considered uh, moving to India, and I applied for a few academic jobs uh, because I actually wanted to. So my passion is teaching, honestly. So the, the the reason why I wanted an academic job was this: that an academic job, as opposed to an industrial job, gives you the independence of three months off. So you can pursue a book project, you can pursue something a little serious. So I want to write nonfiction with some research. So that's not. It's not like something which you can do after work, come in, uh, come in at home and start writing an hour at nine o'clock at night. It's not. It's something which requires to take something out of you, both in terms of time and in terms of brain cycles. So being in academia allows somebody to have that time off. That's one of the, and that's why you get paid less in academia too, because it's a, it's a, it's a trade-off and that's perfectly fine. But I found out that I was not welcome in Indian academia. I mean, I wanted, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to get a job in one of the institutes of management to basically teach cybersecurity as a risk management, as, as an aspect of risk management. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because I feel that the problem with respect to cybersecurity in India is not a problem of technology. It's not that encryption is the problem. I mean, the technologies exist. It's just that cybersecurity is not sufficiently built into the decision-making process of company strategies. It is not something which is people consider cybersecurity at all in terms of anything, really. It's not part of any business plan of any product that they're making. It's just not considered. It's something which, you know, it's something which you can tack on at the very end or it's perhaps a product feature, but it isn't. Cybersecurity is actually holistically, it's, it has to be built in from day one into the way you structure your business or you're just not going to be able to survive. So I think that at this point of time, there is a managerial aspect of cybersecurity, which I was very interested in teaching, because I think that the impact that I could do to my country, India, would be to basically train the next generation of managers to, and because the previous generation of managers just were not trained. And I think one of the reasons why Aadhaar, for instance, has so many cybersecurity holes or gaps and there's so many concerns about it is because it was built by a generation of engineers who, again, did not have what it, it was not managed in a way that had cybersecurity at its core. So whenever you're building systems in this day and age, cybersecurity has to be built in. And it's not just a technological problem, it's a management problem. So that is what my that's what my mission was. At that point of time, I felt it was my mission. That's what I wanted to do, but I felt that there was no interest. So that's when I jettisoned my plan of going to India. But that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an academic in India 
um, and spend some of the time that I have the three months doing other projects because that that would kind of make me happy. That would kind of tick all my boxes. So if I I could have tried for industrial jobs, but if I was going to work in an industrial job, why would I go to India? I mean, I could just do do as well do it in here. And again, I'm not so interested in the technological foundations of cybersecurity at this stage of my career as I'm in more the managerial aspects of it because there is a significant uh, there's a significant thing there which a lot of people don't understand. And there, it's not something which I'm saying just you know my idea. There is a significant body of work that already exists on this, which I believe there is not a lot of awareness of, especially in management circles. And there's a long answer. I did, didn't think I was going to spend so much time on this. There's a question on uh, by Mat Karma is, how do you overcome writer's block? Well, the reason, the, the way I overcome writer's block is I just don't write if I don't feel like it. So if I don't feel like it, I might not write for months. In the early stage of my career, that was not the case. I felt that I was obliged to write. Um, so I wrote sometimes where it's not a question of writer's block, but I was writing where I wasn't, I wasn't feeling like it. But now as I grow older and I have a daughter and I have other things, I realize with there's nobody who's forcing me to write. If I feel that I'm being forced to write, then it's no longer a hobby for me. It's basically a, a job, right? That's what a job is. So for me nowadays, I I consciously said, you know, if I'm not feeling like writing, I want to watch some silly thing on Netflix, I'm going to just go ahead and do it. Because if I don't want to write, that's some, there's a part of me telling me that if you write something today, it's going to be junk. So that to me is writer's block. Otherwise, I don't have the traditional writer's block where I don't know what to write. That usually doesn't happen to me. But there are months, I mean, just see this, I, I was writing Sultan of Delhi and I was writing Shakchuni and I just stopped writing both of them. And I totally jettisoned both the projects and started doing my cybersecurity book. I did it for four years. I didn't write anything on those because I just didn't feel like it. I was so pissed off working with publishers in India and just, just facing the ritual humiliation of dealing with publishers because of my political opinions. Openly telling me that to my face almost. I said, you know what? Screw it. I wanted to use a stronger word, but I think YouTube has a problem if I use the F word. So, you know, screw it. But you know what I was trying to say. So I thought I'm not going to work with Indian publishers when I have a foreign publisher for my cybersecurity book. And they don't, they're very respectful. And of course, they, they, they're very professional. It's not like the unprofessionalism that I faced from Indian publishing. So I just stopped doing it for a while. And I think that was a good decision because. I have to prioritize my mental health over everything else. That's the most important thing. As I grow older, I realize that is the most important thing. So um, there's a question on uh, MOOCs. So is MOOC changing the educational landscape in India with innovative and practical approach? Well, I, for me, I think that where MOOCs really come in, which is like basically massively online I've forgotten what the full form is, but it's massive online coaching, training, but essentially Coursera and, uh, you know, Khan Academy. So what they do, I think, is that they basically democratize education. So when we were growing up, the only way you could learn about things, because books were expensive, and, you know, what would you learn from books? But very well-produced YouTube videos are in many cases better than any kind of live teaching. Right? The only thing that MOOCs, I think, fall where 
you just can't replace the university experience with a MOOC is a lot of learning is interacting with your peers. Um, it's not it just the two things about interacting with peers, which is very important to learning. One is the ability to work with other people. So when you do your course assignments, the ability to work with other people of different abilities, of different goals, different personalities, that is something which you have to learn because ultimately when you grow up, you'll have to work with other people. And sometimes you have very smart people who unfortunately cannot work with another human being. And that's that becomes a problem for them in their career. So that, I don't think MOOC can, MOOC can really teach you that. That's one thing. And second thing is that you create, and that's related to working with other people, is that you can't learn sitting at home. And maybe I'm a little old-fashioned in that respect, but I think that you need to make a human connection with your fellow students and fellow colleagues. It's not just to have fun. That's one part of it. I'm not saying that's not insignificant, but I'm saying that also you need to be able to create a human connection. And I don't think MOOCs do that. Yes, MOOCs are good for, let's say you're a professional uh, and you want to learn something while you're at work, but you can't obviously can't go and have a formal education. They're very good. You can take these courses in the weekend. So in terms of continuing adult education, I think they're great. But would they, in my opinion, replace the university experience? Absolutely not. I don't think that they're there yet. And I can't just see them ex uh, replacing, even though the lecture quality of lectures would be far better than what you would get at the normal university. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. So there's another question from our discipline. What is your advice to aspiring writers who are working professionals in a demanding field? Well, the, the simplest thing that I would say is have, you know, try to allocate a slice of time in your life for writing. And there is a question that I will deal with, which I have in every AMA is how do you manage time? Uh, you do so many things. You have a, you know, active professional life. You have, you know, you're on Twitter, you do a podcast, you write books. How do you do all of it? And the reason why you, so here's my, I'll try to answer that question along with answering this question the same way. So it's not that I have a Microsoft project file with uh, you know, here's the way I split up my day. Absolutely not. But I have in my mind a certain idea of how much time I'm spending on different activities. And again, it is guided purely by my mood. There was a time before when I was younger, when I tried to be more formal about it, that I would say, okay, I've come home now from seven o'clock to eight o'clock, I'll write a blog. But once you are a dad and, you know, some things like this no longer work because there is always a lot of unplanned things which come up. So you can't you, you can't have that discipline anymore. And one thing that I absolutely don't want to do is I don't want to miss out on my daughter growing up uh, in order to write a book. This is a decision which I took myself because you see, for me, I, all, I mean, I love writing books. I love writing books because of the activity of writing books. And I also love the, the art of writing, not the art, but I also love writing books because people read it and say, we like the book. So the approval is absolutely a high when it comes to writing. Otherwise, I would just write stuff and, you know, never publish it. I would just keep it to myself. Why do I need anybody to even read what I've written? I could write it in my diary. So the approval is definitely a part of it. 
in anybody who says that it's not is absolutely lying whether it's any anybody who produces any kind of art for public consumption whether it be movies writing paint they want approval that's fairly you know that's it comes with why you put something out in the public it's often not for making money unless you're very deluded because a lot of, most people like 99% of people will not make a significant amount of money it will not be worth the time they put in to any of these artistic endeavors so I, it's not i don't do it for money but i definitely do it for public approbation but now i realize that public approbation is not that important for me in comparison to spending time with my daughter that is more important because my daughter is growing up of course like that's a truism um but the fact is that I will miss some of these aspects of her growing up. Even now I realize, you know, my daughter is going to be 10 next month. I mean, he's different from the girl she was when he was five and seven. It's like a, almost a different person. And I sometimes miss this old person also. I realize that that person is no longer there. I, and and the, the times that I usually remember this is when uh, you get these notifications from iOS, you know, your album for from two years ago or your pictures from five years ago. I look at it anyway, wow, this, <laughs> this looks so different. So I realized that, you know, as a person, she's changing. And that's obviously natural and that's great. And I love being part of that change. But it's more important to me at this time of life to ensure that I form those memories and that she forms those memories with me. Because I also want her to feel that I was a part of her growing up. It's very, very important to me. That I be there. So there are times when I wish that I could write things faster. I wish that I could do better time management. But then, you know, life gets in the way. Before I had my daughter, and when my daughter was very little, right? That wasn't the case. But nowadays, as she becomes increasingly becomes, you know, a person, um, I find that I I am kind of falling behind my time management and many things are slipping. Uh, and I think, and I'm happy with that. I'm not trying to rectify that situation at all. I, I was a much more time managed guy, let's say five years ago than I am now. Uh, Ankit Sharma says, who is or was your source of inspiration for humor writing? So for me, the my, my single greatest inspiration for humor writing is yes, minister and yes, prime minister. So the scripts of, I mean, it is politics and uh, I just love the way they write. I mean, I've read the I've read the script so many times. So if you ask me what is the source of inspiration, that's one. And I also like some of the I like Chris Rock in terms of stand-up comedy. I like Dave Chappelle also. Dave Chappelle is very controversial, but I like the fact I don't agree with a lot of things he says, especially you know some of his you know transphobic stuff that he's kind of uses nowadays. I just I mean I understand his point, but to I, I just don't find it funny after a time. But there was a time in which Dave Chappelle was pretty funny. He still is, actually. He's a very, very intelligent comic, um, possibly the most intelligent comic currently. So, But that's the thing about comedy. Even if you don't like what a person is saying, you can still appreciate the humor and the way he's making the point. So uh, I would say Dave Chappelle. Um, BN asks, how can our generation cope with where is home? Uh, home is where you are for me, at least. Home is where you have a comfortable, I mean, home is where you are in control. So nowadays what happens is when I, when I go home to my parents, I mean, 
where do I feel more at home? Do I feel more at home here in this place? Or do I feel more at home back in Kolkata? And for me, the answer is here. Because it's just the way it is. I mean, that there it is. Yeah, it's my old bed that I used to sleep in. And it's my old table in which I used to study. But they're just there. It's not where I live anymore. So many things, I just feel that it's foreign to me. And this is this. And this is the way I see things. This place where I currently am is where everything is familiar. So for me, home is where you feel familiar. That's That to me is the definition of what home is. So it's wherever you feel the most familiar. Uh, some uh, B. Datta asks, I've been your follower for more than a decade. I sometimes think your super sophisticated professional career is just an attempt to compensate for your taste in movies. So, first of all, I, I think I have a very evolved taste in movies. It's just that just because I like Gunda, there are different parts of the brain that process uh, works of art. So Gunda, there is a different part of brain that processes Gunda than Satyajitri, than Bergman. Um, I, I appreciate all of it, actually. So if you followed my writings, I, I, I review very highbrow movies too. But I also, I also like, you know, bad movies because I think that there is, there's a different kind of aesthetic. And if you, if you study aesthetics, you realize that there are multiple, um, there are, there are multiple, let's say, pleasure centers. <laughs> in your brain so uh just because you like something bad doesn't mean you and, and it's not that i like just bad bad things i like bad things which are which i appreciate the effort that went into making that thing bad like gunda it's not that i like bad things i mean otherwise i would be watching you know varun dhawan movies or you know i would be watching that even forgotten the name of the latest movie that came out, Circus. I would be watching Circus. I'm not watching Circus. I have no desire to waste two or three hours of my life watching what I know is crap. And by the way, in terms of time management, these are the things which I don't do anymore. There was a time in my life when I would watch Circus knowing fully well it's crap just to see how bad it can be. But nowadays I don't do it. If there's something which I basically know that is going to be crap, I don't usually watch it. But sometimes I go in watching things, going to see things which I think are going to be good and they turn out to be crap. That's when I get mad and I review. But I don't go walking. If I know that something's going to be crap, I don't usually go in nowadays where I used to, expecting it to be. Having said that, I did watch Gumnam recently. Just, just, just to be you know, fully out there, just to tell you, I did watch Gumnam knowing that it wouldn't be great. The old Gumnam. I was right. Um, <laughs> Dharmakrit asks, what are the must-read books for cyber network security expert? So first of all, I having written a book on cybersecurity, I'll tell you there's no good book for cybersecurity. <laughs> if you want to start, if you have a question on where to start, it's almost always exclusively online resources. That's where you will get the best write-ups, like Stack Exchange. Some of the best writing on cryptography is in Stack Exchange. You know, people just writing things. You know, why is, you know, you have a question on something in cryptography, just type it in Google, you usually go to Stack Exchange. And odds are that somebody's written an amazing, with citations, answer to it. So for me, the best place to learn is online. Now, the reason why I wrote the book, having said that, 
is because there are a lot of things in the book that I have written which are not online as of present. So, and I in my book I actually say that in the introduction that if something's online, I just point to it and just ask you to read it there because I'm not going to reinvent the wheel and I obviously can't be better than they are because they are actually better than me. I don't want to paraphrase what has already been written there and pass it off as my own. So you, I'll, I'll point to where you should go online and read it, but there are things that you will not find online, which I write this down in my book. That's the reason for a book. But again, my book is for somebody who's not starting out in cybersecurity. There is a section which kind of goes over very fast with citations and pointers to where, but it's just kind of like, yeah, I've already read it, but I kind of forgotten it. Let me just quickly regurgitate it. It's like what happens before a TV series and episode starts, what's happened before, something like that. It's not there to replace the experience of watching the previous episodes is just to kind of trigger your memory as to what's happened in the previous episodes. So Dexter Morgan asks, what is your all-time favorite fiction book? My all-time favorite fiction book is always says is Mahabharat. Well, <laughs> somebody might say it's not fiction, but I take it as fiction. And I don't know who the author of Mahabharat is. I, <laughs> um, I think it's written by a lot of people, to be honest. That's the way it was written. It's, it's too vast to be written by one person. It's a great book. And I've discussed before also why I think it is my favorite fiction book. I've written two, one book is directly based on Mahabharat and one book mine indirectly based on Mahabharat. So you can understand how big an inspiration it's been. I have an idea of writing another book on Mahabharat also at some point of time, which I kind of pitched to a publisher who was like, you should write this book right now. This is such an amazing concept. But again, I just don't have the time to write write that book, which is again based on the Mahabharat. It's not a murder mystery or anything. Somebody asked, why are you the great bong? So again, I've it's actually in my blog, if you read the blog, but the word Great Bong was a name which was given uh, by somebody else, a friend of mine who at that point of time didn't quite write, like Bengali. So he, he gave the name, not to me, we, we used to play uh, Jeopardy online. And so he made an account uh, and he gave this login ID Great Bong for me. Uh, because he felt that you know bongs think too highly of themselves. So this is a, this is a pejorative uh, take on Bengalis. So that's how I, I named myself. Uh, it was kind of a dead. It, I'd started my blog, which is where the word great bong was first used because I left my uh, PhD. I finished my PhD and I came to Detroit on my first job and I was missing my friends. I was missing our late night Adda sessions. And so that's when I started the blog as a way of recreating that in an online space. And so that was on my mind. So the first thing that when I had to create this blog URL was the name that this friend of mine, who was one of the people I was missing, gave me. So that's why I named myself Great Bong. So for those of you who think that it is me calling myself great, no, it's not. Obviously, it's not. Uh, what do you plan to do for Gunda's 25th anniversary next year? <laughs> I don't know. I sometimes, I sometimes want to move away from Gunda because I think I've done it a lot of times. And then I... <laughs> Every time I try to get out, they bring me back again. I just can't. Uh, the next question is from Dharmakrit. How do you balance work and interests such as writing, blogging, podcasting? I think I, I told you this. Sunny asks an interesting question. Would you write comedy series like Decoupling or Wednesday on Netflix? Seemed like genre is made for you. I would love to write a comedy. Um, I would like love to write a comedy on um, you know, people like me in the US. 
and and their lives uh but i'm not sure it would work very well as a book um i would love to write you know tv series scripts but i've never had an opportunity it's not something which you can really do because you can't get into that coterie if you are not there so yeah i would absolutely be open if somebody came to me and said can you write it i would be more than happy and i have several ideas of for comedies again indian comedies um may i don't think it's going to be a hee hee ha ha ho ho kapil sharma kind of show but you know sarcasm and you know situational comedy absolutely would love to write it i think there is a huge market for it and i think nobody is really talked i mean we've talked there there's the shows like office and stuff uh but there's nothing really about the desi life in software offshore or you know desi staying in the us i don't think there is i can't think of any which off the top of my head maybe i'm but i would love to write that um views on indian stand up comedy any favorites local or global one tip for humor writing asks project so for me i i don't really follow indian indian stand up because from what i have what i used to at one point of time when it was manageable uh, where there were not a lot of comics but i the, the comedy just doesn't work for me i think some of them are just <laughs> i mean if if i go back to that aib uh, roast i mean some of the stuff were just like lifts of stuff and i had written about it so i don't want to go into in detail which is lifts of western concepts which you know which didn't even translate well so they didn't even understand the cultural underpinnings they just basically copied it so that's for me a lot of and nowadays many of it is just you know the kunal kamra type of guy who's again who i don't think he's even interested in stand up comedy he's a politician so i don't want to pay money or you know spend my time watching youtube watching a, a politician um, i would watch madhun mitra if i wanted to he's more funny absolutely he's definitely more funny than uh, kunal kamra um it's not a question of politics madhun mitra is tmc but he's definitely more funny uh so i don't think there's any local global i said i i like dave chapel not sure i like many of his opinions nowadays i like chris rock i uh, love chris rock um i uh, like not so much bill mar stand up but i do like bill mar show again i don't agree with a lot of bill mars especially what bill mar has become nowadays uh but still you know like a lot of his well like some of his political stances still now like his comedy not so much his stand up i don't think he's particularly good at stand up i think he's much better when he does than Does the does does the uh, does the Bill Maher's you know news uh, d- discussion? I think he's much better there. Don't think he's great at stand up. Um, who else? I uh, can't think of anybody who I would regularly follow. I don't like Bill Burr. I've tried. Who didn't 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 quite work for me. Uh, Fortune Pen Project also asked, "What is your ideal writing routine? Um, what is an ideal day to you? Say in a world where money commitments does not exist." So my ideal day would be <laughs> you really want to know my ideal day that's a great question. So um ideal writing routine would be 2 hours. I don't think you can write for more than 2 hours a day. If you write more than 2 hours a day you produce junk. So 
what I usually do is I usually have pre-thought what I'm going to do. So when I write, it's a very, it's a solid writing, solid writing. Uh, it's just, I'm struggling with the exact English word here, but I'm not thinking much at that point of time. Let me put it. I'm not thinking, hey, what will the guy say next? I usually have thought this through before I start writing. I use the downtime that I have. Let's say I'm taking a walk, which I have to for health reasons. Um, that's when I think of, hey, this is the next sequence in Chakchurni. This is where I want to start it from. This is the location. Here's how they walk in and I can kind of see it in my mind. And many people say that I write scripts and I don't write books. Maybe that's a good, maybe that's a true criticism because I see things cinematically. I see things in terms of camera angles. I see things in terms of, you know, where the person is looking at the person, what expressions they will see. Um, I'm a very visual person when it comes to writing. If you've seen my writing, it's also very visual. So um, if, if for some, it looks like as if I'm giving like camera instructions, maybe I, I don't say camera move spans, but if that's definitely the way I'm thinking. So, but it's coming back to the ideal day for me. Ideal day for me would be to wake up late, um, then uh, be alone. <laughs> sometime, I think it's ideal day would obviously now with, you know, have some time with my daughter. So again, split up. I think I, I think I do have these ideal days. It's not that this is a day which I don't, you know, wake up late, some time with my daughter, have some time alone, have some time with my wife. So then you split up. You know, split my day into different and have just like Gunda and Bergman, have some time to myself. I can read a book, write some stuff, just be on Twitter. Um, so some time for myself, definitely some time for myself. I think that's very important. I think many times, especially people from a generation before us, were quite guilty of spending time for themselves. They felt that this was a family man should not spend time for themselves. They should not want time for themselves. But I think that's not true. You do need time to yourself. You are a family person. You're a husband or a wife or you're a father or a mother, but you're also an individual and you need to have some time for yourself, for your own mental health. I think that's very important. And I, you know, I make sure that I have my personal time and I'm, and I'm very thankful to my family for giving me also the opportunity because sometimes many families are not, don't see it that way. Uh, there is another question of uh, what do you think of PhD? Uh, secondly, do you think college matters? I, I've said enough about PhD, don't want to go, go into it again, but yeah, I don't think that PhD is kind of worth the return or investment for most people. Short answer. Secondly, do you think college matters? I, I think what you mean is that does it matter whether you went to IIT, you went to Jadav University, you went to, well, it matters for your first job, but it doesn't matter after that. So after that, it's just basically what, what you do in life. Um, nobody really cares. I mean, when I'm hiring, uh, when I'm building my team here, I'm, I'm, I don't care where you did your undergraduate, your master's from. I'm looking for your last job experience, what you did there and do your skill, the, the skill sets that you that you have exhibited to their line with the role. There's no brand here. I'm not looking for any brand. As a matter of fact, it's hardly of any concern. So maybe for your first job, yes, but not after that. I don't think it's, I think we worry a lot about, you know, which university I went to and everything, but maybe it does matter for a while. But if you look at the entire spectrum of your life, it's a, 
it's a drop in the ocean. Nobody cares. Uh, Rohit Chakravarti likes is is cyber is CSEs, computer science and engineering, the only engineering field to pursue. Take on other engineering? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think. Uh, computer science and engineering is only for a very, very few people. I don't think that everybody should be doing. See, you can be in mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and you'll have to learn how to program, right? That is not computer science and engineering. Computer science and engineering is the basic fundamentals of computer science. It's compiler theory. It's automata theory of computation. That for me is computer science and engineering. Um, Most people don't need to know that at all. but those in computer science and engineering definitely need to know it. And I'm sometimes surprised when I see people with a master's in computer science and engineering who say they haven't had a course in compilers or they don't know what recursive descent is or uh, they don't know what like functional programming is. They don't know what lambda calculus is. I'm like, well, you can be a lot of things. You can be a good programmer in Python, but dude, you're not a computer scientist. Uh, because those things are important in computer science because that's that's really what computer science is. So take on other engineering fields, keeping an eye on the future. I think everybody has to learn how to code, regardless of which engineering field you're in. Even if you want to stay in that engineering field, um, then there's a question of ed tech versus university education. As I said, I think that ed tech will never supplant university education, even though the quality of individual courses might be better there. But a university education is so much more than just learning how to do stuff. It's just so much more than that. Uh, any hope of India rising with reservations increasing? Oh man, that's a topic for another day. I'm going to skip that topic for now on. Uh, there's an again a question from Gachli Boli Divarkar who engages with me a lot on time management. Uh, Sumit asks, of all the books you've written, which one do you love the most and why? I think the book that I love the most is the book that actually did the worst in terms of sales. <laughs> so is Yatrik. Uh, it's because the, the question was, which book do you love the most? It's not the book which you, which I think is the best written or the one with the best story. The answers would change. But I love Yatrik the most, not just because it didn't sell all that well, but it was also because it's, in my opinion, the most sophisticated of all my books in terms of what it's trying to say. Um, that's why. That's why I, I love it. I, I, I love the ending of it. Uh, unlike most of my books, it's not a, it's not a gory ending or it's not a, you know, it's very different from all my other books, but I think that's the reason why I love it. It's, it's a book, which is very personal to me. Um, I sincerely believe in what I'm trying to say in that book. It's not just, you know, stuff that I'm saying just for the sake of saying it. So um, that's my favorite book. I mean, that's the book I love the most. Let's put it like that. Um, Well, any other questions? So there's one last question. There's a question on any plans on a Bengali version of May I Have Your Attention, Please? Asked by Shovik Basu. I don't think it translates well. That's the problem with me here. I don't just don't think it translates well. I I, I, I hope that by Bengali version, you mean a translation of me here rather than writing me up in Bengali, writing another book like me up in Bengali. I don't think I'll write a book like me up anymore. It's just not possible in this politically correct climate and this cancel culture to to do comedy of that sort, to kind of let free. I could do that in 2008, 2010. I just don't think I can do it anymore. So I don't think I'll ever write a book like me here. I can't. I think it's a tragedy. I think many, many stand-up comedians 
including people like Jerry Seinfeld, the most inoffensive of comedians have said that they just can't, they just don't want to do stand-up comedy anymore because they don't know who they're going to offend. The last question that I want to ask is a question from Ramraj V. Pargi. I hope I've pronounced your name right, which is question on parenting. Do you believe in telling your kids you can do whatever you want, follow your passion? If you figure out that your kid hasn't got it, how do you handle it? Is being blunt and honest a good strategy? That's a great question. It's a good question. My opinion is, yes, you should be blunt. Because you see, one of the things, it's not just a question of uh, you're a parent, right? One of the things that I think comes with the being a parent is sometimes you have to be the bad guy too. That's the sad thing. Sometimes you have to be the bad guy. You cannot, it is not a popularity contest with your child. Yes, there is. You sometimes, so again, it is to the question. There are some, you, there's sometimes you wish that maybe I won't say things. Maybe my child will realize themselves that this is not what they should be doing. And maybe that's the best thing. Maybe that rather than me saying so, it's it's better to make them make the mistake and for them to learn. Sometimes, again, so there's no hard and fast answer to this. And that's where parenting is a crapshoot. You don't know whether you're taking the right decision, honestly. So it's not a good idea to immediately say, look, you, you're not doing well in this. Maybe you should not be doing this. So let, let, let them learn. Let them go on the wrong path, maybe. Again, as long as they're not going to get into trouble. Uh, but if it, let's say, they're not good in sports or eh, they want to play, good, they don't have to necessarily be good at it. But let's say they want to pursue something as a career that they believe that they, I believe that it's not going to work out for them for various reasons. I wouldn't say that don't do it is a good idea because, you know, hey, you tell a kid, don't do it, they're going to do it just because you told them you don't do it, right? So don't do it is usually a way of ensuring that they will do it. So for me, it's more important to just present to them what the facts are without being worried about hurting their feelings. So, for instance, at one point of time, I wanted to not do engineering or science. I wanted to do history, English, because I liked it. My my father didn't say don't do it. Father, as I said this, my father put it in a very nice way. He said, look, if you want to do history or English, you have to you have to be convinced that you're going to be the best. You have to be first. You have to be the very best. And you have to love it and you have to be the best in it for all your life. In engineering, even if you don't like it, and if you're not particularly good at it and you're an average engineer, you'll do well in life. But in English and history, it's not going to be the case. When I heard that, he didn't say don't do English or history. But you put it like that. And if you're a rational human being, you'll realize, oh man, I don't want to. And I, so I did engineering. Now I could have said, you know what? I'm going to be the best in English and history. And I could have gone there. And sometimes as a parent, you unfortunately have to see your child fail. And there's nothing you can do about it, even though, because, you know, saying stuff, you don't do it is absolutely not going to work. All you can do is present facts. And maybe they won't like you for presenting the facts. Maybe they would have said, you know, I just didn't want you to present these facts. I just wanted you to tell me, you're going to be the best in whatever you do and everybody gets uh, everybody gets a medal. But again, that has never been my parenting style. I've always tried to be honest with my daughter about her shortcomings also. And I will continue to do so. 
and if that makes me unpopular unfortunately that is a part of parenting that is a way, and that is that hurts right because you as a parent the person who's approval i now realize i want the most in my life is my daughters one of my biggest fears is that someday my daughter will grow up and read my books and say man what a terrible writer my dad was that to me would be devastating um i'm really worried about it nowadays especially about my old books i try my best with the new books but what about my old books because you you do want the approval of your of your son or daughter the most in the world that's the thing but the thing about being a parent is sometimes sometimes you have to do the the thing that you think is right even if it breaks your heart and that's the i mean not everything about being a parent is roses and uh, chocolates so that's 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 possibly is the worst part of being a parent but again no hard and fast answer to this but it's definitely a question that i've also thought many times especially when you come to real life situations uh that's about it i think i think i've answered pretty much all the questions that i wanted to answer and if i haven't answered your question i i, I apologize it i might have missed it hold on there's some other questions that people might have asked uh using the hashtag that i had first said because what happened is i asked for this hashtag and let's see if i have missed anything uh uh let's see let's see let's see there's a question what advice would you give to your 30 year old self the advice that i would give a younger self always would be to take more risks in life in whatever respect going places risks general even financial risks take more risks early in your life because obviously as you grow older you will not be able to take those risks i deliberately shied away from many risks that i failed that i should have taken professionally personally that i now regret not having taken at that point of time uh let's see uh, any other questions that are left no i think i've done pretty much oh, i've done pretty much all of them uh for now so uh thanks everybody for watching and uh, have a great next year and happy new year there is another episode that i'll be uploading soon which i've already recorded with max da vinci on the ipl auctions i haven't done them yet so anyways happy new year and uh keep safe bye bye